So the year was uh, 1986. Uh, my wife Pam and I were making a difficult career decision on uh, how and where we were going to live. And um, eventually we did make the decision to move from my hometown of Wisconsin Rapids to Decatur, Illinois. Now, uh, we didn't know anyone in the state of Illinois, much less the huge town of Decatur, uh, but uh, God, God was leading us there. Uh, at the time, we had a three-year-old daughter, and my wife was halfway pregnant with our youngest son, Joshua. Um, actually, she was all the way pregnant, just halfway, halfway through, through the term. Um, but we moved, uh, and uh, God blessed in an amazing way that those five years that we spent in Decatur were incredible years of God stretching us in our spiritual walk and a huge part of what our spiritual journey. And so my prayer is that this summer, as we work our way through the book of Philippians, that we as a church would be stretched as well and that God would do some amazing things through us as we work through the new series in the book of Philippians. But first, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you are great and awesome, and you are worthy of our praise. You are mighty through the years. You are faithful. Uh, Lord, we, uh, you know where we are today, and you are mindful and concerned and working in that need. Open our eyes and ears uh, to the message that you have for us in the book of Philippians. I would just pray that in the weeks to come that you would speak through uh, the servant that you have speaking in that particular week and that we would step aside and allow you to teach us in this powerful book. Through your honor and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I'm still reflecting back a couple months ago. Dan uh, shared with us a message actually from Andy Stanley. We watched it on the screen, and Andy uh, chronicled his way through the first century church, uh, of which this book is Philippians was written. So it was written at that time. But we looked at the incredible challenges that the first first century church has had, and Andy talked about how inconceivable it was that God would continue to work in and through His church. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the church is still in existence. Powerful, powerful thing. And so I'm, I'm still thinking about this, and of course part of my calling is church leadership, and so I'm, I'm thinking, how should the church, Crossview Church, be acting, reacting, working in the time that we find ourselves? Uh, if you're reading, you're watching the nightly news or hearing what's going on in the world, it, it's a challenge. It's not a time to wonder where God is. It's a time to trust in God's might and power to work powerfully through his church. And that's what we're hoping will happen. The Apostle Paul understood this. He was committed to this. The Apostle Paul started churches. He put together leadership he taught theology in and through his church. More than that, 
the Apostle Paul had keen insights into how believers should be, could be living their lives for God's honor and glory, not only in the first century, but here today. So his, his, what Paul desired is that the church would not only survive, but that it would thrive. Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Tasia read it for us, and, if you've, and this would be a good time to grab your Bible, and we're working through the book of Philippians. Uh, for those of you that are using the Pew Bible, it's on page uh, 1040, so that'll help you as we move forward. But let's start with a little bit of background to start out with. Customary of the time, the author wrote his name right at the start of the book. We might write a letter and we'll put our name at the end, but at that time, they put it right at the start. And so we're finding out that Paul is the author of Philippians. Paul's a man who many Bible scholars would say is the greatest Christian of all time. Well, let's look at his pedigree. Paul was a Jew of Jews. Uh, Paul will give his brief biography in chapter 3 of this book, and so I'm going to defer that to the speaker of chapter 3. But most of us know about Paul's accounts and how he grew up in the Jewish faith and how he was even so zealous as to help kill and destroy Christian, Christians and Christianity, okay? And it wasn't until he got on his horse and drove to Damascus, got knocked off his horse, met Jesus face to face, that his life was forever changed. God continued to teach Paul the truths of the Christian faith, as did other men, and eventually Paul and his encouraging partner, Barnabas, became the first missionaries of the Christian church. Paul was in Antioch, the church in Antioch at the time, and the church commissioned him to be a missionary. Now, if any of you have a Bible that's got maps in, one of the maps that you'll read or be able to see in your Bible is a map of Paul's missionary journeys. Paul took three missionary journeys, and in the second journey, he stopped in the Roman town of Philippi, started a church there, and 10 years later, he is now writing a book to the Philippians. Paul wrote to churches to let them know that he was continuing to think about them, that he was encouraging them. If there were doctrinal issues that needed to be shared, Paul would share those in his writings. Philippians is the most uplifting book in the Bible that Paul wrote. Now, Paul wrote 13 New Testament letters, most of which were written to churches. Paul is writing this letter from a house prison in Rome. This is, Paul ended up uh, spending two terms in prison in Rome, and this is the first term that he was in Rome, and he is writing this from a prison. From prisons, Paul wrote four New Testament letters, of which this is one of them. So there's two 
scriptural text that I'd like to share with you that gives us a little bit of the insight into who is, who is this man, Paul, and what is he all about. The first one would be uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28 that are up on the screen there. This is the culmination of Paul's time as a missionary. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open seas. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things, there is the daily pressure on me, my concern for the churches. Anyone want to sign up to be a missionary? Not seen too many hands. Two things really hit me. I, 99.9% of us wouldn't get past the first line, much less through all of them. It's amazing what Paul did when he understood the call of God on his life and worked through that. But secondly, I'm impressed on how, with all those physical challenges that Paul faced, that his daily concern was what? For the churches. Paul is concerned about the church, and that's important to know as we head into this verse or in, into this book here. Now, a second passage that I think says a lot about Paul, and one that God has been speaking into my heart at this time, is First uh, First Corinthians nine verses twenty-four to twenty-seven. Don't you know that the runners in in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one who's beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul's running the race. Paul's running hard. He's he's sprinting, but Paul's not one that's just running or exercising without purpose. Paul is working with a purpose in mind. Paul's goal is is to get to the finish line. Not necessarily to break the tape. Paul's goal is to get to the finish line with as many people as he can. Paul was concerned about finishing well with many. So Paul is a dynamic missionary. He's a church planter. He's a powerful preacher. He's a caring pastor. He's a gifted evangelist an astute theologian, he's a brilliant teacher, a prolific author, he's the writer of Philippians. Yet in addition to all the descriptors that I just shared, I think Paul knew 
that if the church was going to continue past his time, that one of the most important things Paul could do was to be a mentor. And that Paul was a mentor to the, to the boy Timothy. So as he's writing here, he's including Timothy as a co-author in the book. Timothy uh, is, is one who uh, was with Paul when they started the church in Philippi. The people in Philippi knew Timothy well, and we're going to hear more about Timothy, actually, in chapter 2, and so I'll reserve that time for another. But Paul authored, co-authored the book uh, with Timothy. Now, Paul describes himself and Timothy as a servant. How many of us describe ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ? But if you, if you study the Greek, it's more than that. He calls himself a doulos. Doulos is actually considered a bondservant. Timothy and Paul were yoked together as slaves for Christ. They were bought with the blood of Christ. They were entrusted with the gospel. And it was their desire to see that God would be glorified. And they did so as slaves for Christ. Now, as we continue in the text, Paul then addresses the believers in Philippi. He, he addresses them in two different ways. First of all, he calls them saints. If you read through the epistles of Paul, he often uses this term saint. Saint is the one that is set apart from the world and set apart unto God. Okay, so their goal is to please and serve God. Now, it's important that they were saints in Christ Jesus. Those three words are powerful, powerful words. I wish I had more time to elaborate on that, but if you ever have time, do a study on what it means to be in Jesus Christ. It's powerful, and we need to understand it and live by it. But a second way that Paul is addressing these believers in Philippi is by extending a blessing over them in verse 2, wishing them grace and peace. Grace and peace, two common terms that he uses in a lot of his books at the start of the books. They combine two words that were common. One was common to the Gentiles. One was common to the Jews. Gentiles understood grace. They understood grace because the Jews were the ones that were entrusted. They were the children of God. And yet the Gentiles, because of grace, were allowed to be part of God's chosen people. So they understood grace. Jews understood peace or shalom uh, as a gift from God. And so Paul would often address uh, people uh, that, that he would be writing to in terms of grace and peace. But without, one, without a doubt, one of the most important gifts that Paul has given the church through his writings is his continual attitude and practice of prayer. So whether it was incorporating the doxologies in his writings or an outright prayer, in this text of Scripture, Paul taught prayer through his writings. 
I talked to a number of people, and they have questions. Well, I'm, I'm not sure how to pray. I don't know how, who, how to pray or what I should be praying for. And, and I would just say this. Read Paul's Gospels. Paul teaches us how to pray. Obviously, Christ taught his disciples, but Paul continues to teach us how to pray. I don't know if you're like me, but uh, maybe you have your daily reading assignment that you, that you go through, and, and how often do we read that? Uh, maybe sometimes as quickly as we can so that we can get on with the day and say that we've done our reading. And how many times do we miss good stuff that's in those, the reading of the day? And how many times have we skipped over prayers that Paul has been praying? So in verse, verses 3 through 11, Paul gives us a great prayer that he's praying for his saints in Philippi. The insights are incredible if we slow down and just read them. So first of all, in verses 3 through 5, what is Paul doing? He's praying for other people. He's rejoicing in the believers in Philippi. He's heard reports that they're growing in their faith and partnering in the gospel. I trust that praying for others is a part of your prayer discipline. Many, many of us are all concerned with ourselves, and we're just praying for ourselves. God, do this for me, do this for me. Are we praying for other people? Do you pray for your pastors on a daily basis? Do you pray for our church staff on a daily basis? Do you pray for other churches in this community that they would be preaching the gospel? Are we praying for people that can rise up today to speak scripturally into the social issues of this day? Who, who's speaking the gospel into the issues today? Do we pray for the next generation of young people? Do we pray for Apex that someday maybe there will be someone in Apex that would be a pastor, a missionary, a man of God that would lead his family? Do we pray for other people. We need to be praying for the next generation of leaders in the church. And if the church is to continue triumphant, we're going to need men and women committed to the Word of God. Secondly, Paul is praying confidently to the work and the promises of God and the lives of believers in verse 6. Listen to verse 6 again. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Quite honestly, I thought about spending most all of my time on this verse alone. This is a powerful, powerful verse. And what I'd like to do is maybe abbreviate some of my thoughts on this verse as we go through, and I'll share some of those on the screen as we continue to go through this sixth verse in the first chapter, which points out to me four biblical truths. First of all, God started the incredible work of faith in the lives of believers. See, a natural man is not interested in the things of God. 
because a natural man is too concerned about himself. And it's only when God moves in the lives of people and allows our hearts to be open to the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit works in our life to move us to the point where we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, that salvation happens. This isn't something that we can get excited about that we've done. This is a work of God. We can take no credit for this. But secondly, this verse is also telling us something, is that we live between the already and the not yet. Now, if, if you've been listening to Dan, uh, Pastor Dan preach over, over time, he'll use this comment quite often. What, and, and what is he meaning? We live between the already and the not yet. Already, Christ has come to earth, he's died, he's rose from the dead, and he's ascended. Christ came to earth, and he's gone. That has happened. Christ will return someday to reclaim his church. In between that time, we're living. So, this verse is reminding us again that we're living between that day and the day of Christ Jesus. But thirdly, God is working in and through our lives to change us. God is working in and through our lives to change us. God's desire is that we would conform to the image of his son. As, he's, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Maybe you remember 28. 29 tells us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and that God is doing the work in us. So when salvation comes, first of all, we become new creations. After that, God is changing, molding, transforming us to change us. So we are without excuse. Now, it, it, it's hard sometimes for people to, to listen or for, for me to hear people say, well, I'm just that way because I'm a redhead. Or I've, I, you know, I'm Italian. That, that's just the way I am Italian. Or that's the way my family has always been and that's the way I'm always going to be. We're without excuse. Those things mean nothing to God. God is continually changing us. In fact, it's an affront to God to say, I will never change. It directly speaks against what God is trying to do in and through our life. Fourth, this is grace. This is grace. Praise God that I'm not still the 20-year-old punk that just first hear, heard about God. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I was arrogant. I was obnoxious. I, I, you, you just go right down the list. God is in the business of transformation and change, and this is grace. Praise God that he breaks the chains of our past, and we become new creations. 
Here's an important thing to remember, though. God isn't just all about changing our life. He's also changing other people at the same time. Why is that important? Well, we, we have this thing we love to come down on people. We love to judge them. We love to say, well, I, I don't even know if he's a Christian. We, we, we try to corner people all the time. What if, what's, what's the reality? God is still working in their lives as well. This is grace. Well, Paul continues to move on as he's, as he's sharing this, but, but one step back, God, Paul prays this confidently, being sure of this. Some, some translations say that I am confident of this, but Paul is speaking knowing that God is doing the work. Well, verses 7, 11 through 11 deal with Paul's motivation. What drives Paul to pray for others with confidence? Paul's motive? Love. Listen to the words that Paul uses in these verses. I have you in my heart. How deeply I have missed you. He prays with the affection of Christ Jesus. Then as Paul is interceding for the believers... He changes his request to God, and he's praying that the love that he has for these people will be a love that they will have for other people as well, that they would grow in discernment and that they would be presented as one that is pure and blameless. Do we pray for other people's discernment? Is our confidence in God so strong that we are sure that God will work in the lives of other people? Is prayer a priority at Crossview Church? Certainly it's a committee that anyone can be a part of. And, and just to step aside for a second, I would just say this. Um, Pastor Dan has shared some of the things that he's planning on doing in his sabbatical. Um, one of the things that the elders and Pastor Dan have talked about uh, is the huge impact that taking a week of prayer during Holy Week had on this church. Many of you participated in it, and it was a powerful, powerful week of prayer. What does that mean? How are we going to move forward? Dan is praying through that during the summer. The elders are praying through that. This church is not going to continue without the discipline of prayer. We're not going to reach this community without praying for the community. You all know people who are lost and away from the Lord. Nothing's going to change short of God moving in their life. Prayer is vital if the church is going to continue. Prayer precedes revival. Prayer is the work of the church and one of the means that God uses to sustain his church. 
Well, there's another silent means that God uses to show the lost world that his church makes a difference. It is the theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians and the theme that we've chosen for this, this study, joy in all things. Paul has already used the term to express his satisfaction in praying for believers. Paul used the term joy 16 times in the 104 verses of Philippians. Joy and rejoice are heard often. Remember now, this is coming from a man who went through everything that we just studied and a man who was writing from prison. Joy is the thing that Paul understood makes for an effective life. Joy is a supernatural delight in God and his goodness. Again, the natural man can't understand this because the natural man is all concerned with happiness. Well, what is happiness? Happiness is all depends on whether we get what we want It's all based on circumstances and whether it turns out in our favor, it's all horizontal. Joy is that what springs up in the Christian in a way that's totally unrelated to circumstances in this life. It springs up from the Christian because, as Chris shared a few weeks ago, it is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy isn't something we can manufacture on our own. Joy happens when the Spirit of God works in and through us. Joy always works vertically as we understand that anything that happens in our life is providential. We have much to learn about joy. Joy is found in every chapter in the book of Philippians. And along the way, here's what will happen. Next week, Pastor Chris is going to be teaching us about joy in our circumstances. The following week, we'll learn about joy in our attitude as a servant. Our our worship pastor, Ryan, is going to lead us in chapter 3, where we're going to learn the important joy in our identity in Christ. Kale, our youth director, is going to lead us in understanding the joy that we have in our citizenship in heaven. And we're going to end up, chapter 4, joyful in being content. That'll be a challenge. I I understand joy is hard. Every week we uh, uh, mention that if you have a prayer request, you can put in the offering. Uh, Every week I get a list of all the prayer requests and I spend time in prayer going over those prayer cards, I understand people are going through difficult stuff. There's people in here that are going through some very serious medical situations. We have people who live day to day, year to year, with difficult medical situations. We've got people that have financial challenges. We've got people that have serious relational challenges either with their spouses spouse or their children. Others are dealing with issues that happen in their life. They're wrestling with God. Why did this happen? Why did this happen to me? 
There you have spiritual issues that people are challenging. I, I know joy is tough. Joy is missing in this world today. Unfortunately, it's missing in the church. And I think joy is one of the ways that the church can show that there is a difference in the way that we live, which could draw people to Christ. It reflects in how we handle setbacks. Do we see God working in our lives in all things for his good? How do we press on when it would be so easy to give up? Unfortunately, I, I don't know about you, but many times I'll, I'll be reading Facebook and I'll hear Christian people posting on Facebook and it sounds like their challenge or their situation is greater than our God. I'll be talking to people and I'll hear them talk about stress and worry and fear without even mentioning that God is working in the situation. This should not be so. The church should exhibit a joy. God's church did not survive the past 2,000 years based on man's plans. And I believe that joy and prayer are two ways that God moves in our life to make a difference. I believe God's, as God's people pray and exhibit joy, God's church advances triumphantly. I'm going to just share a short personal example and then we'll close, um, hopefully tying the two together. If joy is a challenge for you, I, I would encourage you to read God's Word. There's a lot in the Bible about God's Word as it relates to joy. And as I've studied joy and worked through joy over the years, I would say that there's no verse that hits me more than the verse in the third book of John, verse 4. I think they're going to put it up on the screen. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's why Paul can speak about joy. When my son was, I mentioned our son Joshua, when Joshua turned 16 years old, he made a decision that he was going to walk down a path that my wife and I would not prefer for him to walk down. Uh, yet, uh, Joshua grew up in such a way that uh, he believed that he had to experience life to find out the lessons of life. And as much counsel as we gave him, it'd go in one ear and out the other. At that time, Josh was hanging around the wrong people. He was dating the wrong type of girls. The gifting that God had worked in his life in the form of music was being used for deplorable music. Um, my wife and I... Um, we unconditionally loved our son and to 
watch the mosh pit music was just not something we were interested in getting involved, but we were there for him. Well, one, one day my wife and I made a decision to sit down with our son and, and just share with him what God had laid on our hearts. One, we told him that since he was an infant, we'd been praying for him that he would marry a woman that loves the Lord. And we were confident that God was going to do that. Secondly, we told him that we were praying that one day he would be using his music for God's glory. And thirdly, we told him this. No matter what he did in his life, he was not going to steal my wife and I's joy. God had done too much in our life for him to steal the joy that God had placed in our lives. So my wife and I made a decision that we were going to pray for our son. And as he went to college for a full year, we prayed Philippians 1.9. The next year he went to college, we prayed Colossians. And Colossians 1, and you know, there's a tremendous prayer in Colossians 1 following year, Ephesians 1, we prayed for our son. I studied and prayed through the whole parable of the prodigal son to understand how to father a child like this. And we did this. We enlisted a group of people to be prayer warriors for our son. I can't tell you how important the life group ministry was in Illinois in the past seven years in this church, in this whole area of building up an army of people that would pray. Well, praise God, I'm here to report that last month on Mother's Day, our son played in the praise band at his church in West Dallas. I it's hard for me to put it into words, the incredible joy of knowing that our son is walking in the truth. God has done some amazing thing in his life and his wife's life, and all we can do is praise God for that. So in closing, do people see joy in your life as a result of your Christian walk? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through your life that would exude the fruit of joy? Are we going to allow this book of Philippians to teach us and to recapture joy of our salvation affecting all areas of our life? May we read and savor this book and allow God to stretch us for his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God. And we just thank you, Lord, even as I think about it. I, th I thank you for all the trials and challenges that the Apostle Paul experienced that he may come out on the other side and triumphantly write about the joy that we can have in our walk 
with you, Lord. Only possible through saving faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I would just pray that if there's someone here that is trying to seek happiness in the world, that today would be the day that they would make a decision to look vertical and see you in all things with joy and in such a way that their life would never be the same. Lord, I just pray now that you would mold us, shape us, transform us into the person you desire us to be for the praise of your glory. Amen.